Outside the Box. Hello and welcome to February's Outside the Box. February's short, so we're just sneaking in. And by way, I mean Mickey Luna. Oi. And Jen Offord. Hello. That was all very peaceful, wasn't it? I know, it was quite <laughs> understated this time. Yeah. Okay, loads to talk about this month. Jen, did you know there's a new children's television channel on Sky? They keep sending me emails about it, so I might as no. well mention it. Well, there you go. Do, do you know anything that's on it? Well, of course I don't, because I don't I don't watch children's TV, but uh, it well, exists, a whole new channel for kids. Lovely stuff, I'll check it out. You know, mm. every now and again you get a bit bored of babies. Uh, yeah. Not often, obviously. Love CBBs. I nearly watched an episode of Bluey the other day, but it turned out the iPlayer wasn't working properly, so I couldn't. So there you go. It's genuinely brilliant, as you've heard me chat about it to uh, Melanie Zanetti, the voice of Chile. It is genuinely brilliant. I think you would actually enjoy it. A two and a half year old told me it was brilliant. I couldn't find out for myself because the iPlayer wasn't working. Talking of things that are coming or new things, I'm getting a bit annoyed because every time I watch something on Sky, which I get an advert for what's coming and they keep telling me Succession is coming and Series 2 of Perry Mason is coming. And I'm like, I fucking know. I'm on board. Stop advertising. It just feels like <laughs> teasing at this point, doesn't it? Being taunted. I am already waiting for both of those things. And yet you keep telling me, guess what's coming? And yet it somehow never seems to arrive. Patience is a virtue, Hannah. Just think how excited you're going to be when they both land. Yeah. Shall we start with things that we've been watching? We might as well start with Happy Valley because it came to an end, a big old end, a couple of weeks ago. And I really don't have that much to say apart from what I ordinarily have to say about Happy Valley, as in it's brilliant. Sally Wainwright is brilliant. Catherine Kaywood is a brilliant character. Sarah Lancashire is a brilliant actress. You know, everyone in it is great. I thought it was interesting that this was the first time that Happy Valley really had sort of purchased, like as in it was all over Twitter. Everybody was talking about it. And I thought it was interesting mm. that because some people are disappointed because after theorising for weeks and weeks that, oh, is Claire going to be dead? Is Neil going to turn out to be Tommy Lee Royce's dad? Of course it didn't end like that because it's a Sally Wainwright drama. It's not one of the many other people who write things for television that aren't as good as Sally Wainwright. I just thought the ending was perfect. If you think that it was a shame that Neil didn't turn out to be Tommy Lee Royce's dad, you don't deserve a... You don't deserve... <laughs> The joy that is Sally Wainwright. And now what we have to look forward to is what she told me. I'm not entirely sure she should have told me, but she did. So let's repeat it. That she's writing a new drama about a woman going through the menopause. Lovely stuff. Very excited about that. I also am very, very pleased that Happy Valley finished over a kitchen table. Just seems perfect. Of course it's perfect. Sally Wainwright wrote it. Agreed. Nothing to add, really. Just what you've said is brilliant. It's really good. I started watching series one and two again, like halfway through series three. And it was really interesting to watch it at the same time. Obviously, I've seen it before, those two series, and sort of see how actually she has kind of like the same stuff is like running throughout. And she does kind of, in a way, set up the ending in series two. It's just it's it's just like masterfully done. It's brilliant. Yeah. The story about what Kieran Hodgson rather brilliantly terms desperate man kills vulnerable woman <laughs> plot line. Troubled yeah. woman kills troubled woman. That did seem slightly rushed, but that is problematic when you come to an end. This is what the problem with Unforgotten Series 4 was. If you want to give your ma- main character a big send-off, you need to eat into the available time for your B-plot. I don't, I don't care. But also, 
also it's part and parcel of she was retiring on Thursday. Like she doesn't have time to solve all the crimes. Yeah. There will be still stuff. And she, you know, she pointed him in the right direction. Yeah. Also, I don't know if anyone noticed this. I saw a lot of people going, oh, did she go to the Himalayas? What's happening? But on her text message, she is asked, is she all ready to go? And she says, yeah, she's leaving on Saturday. And while we know there's a whole universe between whatever is happening to Catherine Kaywood on one day to the next, Mm -hmm. fingers crossed that she does go to the Himalayas. Yeah. I also saw a brilliant interview with Sally Wainwright on um, Victoria Derbyshire's show. And Victoria Derbyshire said, but, you know, could, you know, maybe Catherine would go back into the police force. Something would draw her in. And Sally went, yeah, maybe. Seems possible. We won't be seeing it, though. (laughs) (laughs) Which was joyous. That's the point that she made, isn't it? In in some of the interviews she did, it's not a police procedural. It's about the relationship between Catherine and Tommy. And once that's kind of resolved one way or the other, there's just, there's, that's it. That's the story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Although I would argue, yeah. I think it's about the relationship between Catherine and Claire. I think that's the centrally the most important relationship in it. But anyway, well done. It's finished. I'm a bit sad. I'll probably watch it all again at some point because I think series two is is amazing. Like genuinely, like one of the best series of television ever. It's really, really cracking. So let's move on. Speaking of really, really cracking, Mickey, let's you and I talk about the reason that Linda Ronstadt listens have gone up by 5,000% on Spotify. Oh, amazing. Yeah. It's a Stranger Things effect again, but in playing The Last of Us. The Last of Us. We talked about it a little bit. We were only two episodes in. We are going to talk about it again at some point because there's another four episodes and I'm sure some of those will be absolutely brilliant. So let's talk about episodes three, four, five and six, which is what's happened. Since you... Sorry, is it a ten-parter? I think it I thought is. it was an eight-parter. Shall I Google it? I was pretty sure it's a ten-parter. I am more likely to be wrong, sorry, because I have not checked. I'll tell you what, mm. Mickey, we'll split the difference. It's nine episodes. It's a nine-parter. Uh, yeah, so we'll talk, about, we'll talk about the final three in the next one, but that just gives us some time to talk about what's happened in sort of this middle section, which has been absolutely glorious. Let's call it zombie apocalypse, because that's probably the closest frame of reference we'll have to a they're not zombies hannah they're infected it's different they're not zombies they're infected it's mushrooms Aren't zombies infected I, I agree with you i don't know if you know it's my slightly funny voice there Jen. <laughs> i did i just i just I, it's it, I, yeah <laughs> because this this isn't just superior to anything else in that genre I mean, this is just superior to most things on the television. I had really, really, really high expectations for this. Really high. Mm. Because despite the fact that he started off writing The Hangover, Craig Mason is incredible. (laughs) Like, Chernobyl was obviously incredible. And, And I think actually what he writes about is manhood. That traditional idea. So actually he hasn't moved that far, but he's moved his view of manhood from what's on display in The Hangover to what's on display in Chernobyl to what's on display here. And I just think it's it's even better than I was expecting, like I say, with going with really high bars. There's two two episodes in particular that I want to talk about. The first one, which caused the Linda Ronstadt avalanche of love, which was episode three, which I mentioned briefly in the mail out. Kind of a self-contained story mm. in which two characters played by Nick Offerman and Murray Bartlett encounter each other in a post-apocalyptic world 
and fall in love. And it's just delightful and beautiful and sad and well acted and well written and beautifully shot and was just an incredible piece of television. So maybe we'll start with that episode, Mickey. I don't have very much more to add, Hannah. It was lovely, Bill and Frank's story. I think it's fucking bold to do a bottle episode in episode three of a, as established now, nine-parter. That is a bold move. but And also to have something of that higher quality, that sort of short way into a narrative is, is really impressive as well. But yeah, it's utterly beautiful. That last shot of the open window mm. that will be open forever is just, it's, it's heartbreaking, but also heartwarming. Lovely bit of telly. Loved it. Yeah, agreed. I mean, I would say it would be unbeatable. But that said, I thought this last episode, episode six, was also absolutely incredible. Have you watched it yet, Mick? I have watched it. Of course I've watched it, Hannah. I was, uh, listeners, I was like, Hannah messaged me and she's like, this week's episode of The the Last of Us is brilliant. And I'm like, have you watched it before nine o'clock? And she's like, oh, it's available from 3am. And I was very annoyed with myself that I'd been patiently waiting until nine o'clock every Monday to get my mushroomy fix. Episode six really does showcase Pedro Pascal, who is nominally our lead, along with Bella Ramsey. And I think, as well as being, again, beautifully shot, beautifully beautifully acted and all of that, it pulls a really, really clever trick in the six episodes in, it reminds us that Ellie, who's played by Bella Ramsey, doesn't know anything about Joel at all. It reminds us that we don't really know anything about Joel at all. And what is unveiled in that episode is that I don't know that Joel really knows who Joel is at all either. And it was just beautiful. TV heroes say, I'm too old for this shit a lot. But he said it and really meant it. And it was incredible. I thought those scenes where he was begging his brother, take this off me, which in a way was kind of biblical, wasn't it? I don't want to carry this weight of the world on my shoulder. Take it off me. I thought it was magnificent. I thought it was, he was absolutely amazing in it. Yeah, three episodes three and six really, really stood out for me. Although I do want to give a nod to Melanie Linsky, who was also brilliant in episodes four and five. Mick. She was. I, I saw a lot of criticism that she wasn't the right person to play a post-apocalyptic warlord, but I think she was perfect. And I saw her talking about it and she said, I, I really relished the idea that someone softly spoken who's never had control what would they do if they got control? Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, she wielded it really well. Yeah, episode six was lovely. I also think, you know, it's 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 important to The Last of Us and its narrative that for Joel, as far as he's concerned, since we've met him in this particular world, his main thing is, I'm going to get an engine, I'm going to find my brother, I'm going to find my brother. Mm-hmm. And we've got three more episodes to go and he's he's found his brother. And that's that's not the story for him anymore. And you're right. It's like, how much does Joel know about himself? But how much time do you get for introspection when you're just fighting to stay alive? It, it feels like it's a, it's a word that's overused a lot now, but it feels like it's a privilege, isn't it, mm. to be that introspective, to work out who we are. But no, it's all just so beautifully acted. And I've seen some complaints that there's not enough infected, which obviously we got a shitload of in episode five and then none in episode six, which is fine by me. I think that's absolutely fine. And I think my only other comment is how is Rutina Wesley not aged since she made True Blood? I don't (laughs) understand. That must be like 15, 20 years ago and she looks the same. Yeah, agreed. 
And I think the form of transport that they they were in earlier, you know, we've had walking, we've had cars. Ellie's reaction to being in a car, which is which comes in that episode three at the end of it, is so delightful. She's like, oh, it's like being in a spaceship. Um, But now they've gone to horses and horses. So it has that lovely sort of Western shots of them going across like snowy Colorado. Yeah. Beautiful. You like a Western, don't you, Hannah? Quite like a Western. I've not mentioned it before, but yes, I've been keeping it quiet. <laughs> I, I really do. Jen, when I used to watch Crossroads at me nan's house, I never in my wildest dreams thought that someone from Crossroads would end up being played by Helena Bonham Carter in an ITV drama, but it's happened. <laughs> I still can't quite understand why it's happened, but tell me more about it. Well, let me tell you. <laughs> Is she playing Benny? Please tell me she's playing Benny. <laughs> I, I don't know who that is. Uh, I'd have no memories of Crossroads. I think it. Google him. Google him after we've finished recording, Jen. <laughs> Did he wear a hat? Was he like the handyman? Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. You yeah. do now. Okay. So, yeah, I watched Nolly, another ITVX offering, which is a biopic of Noel Gordon, star of long running soap opera Crossroads, and is written by Russell T. Davies. It covers the period after Gordon was axed at the height of her fame from her role as Meg Richardson after 18 years and with no explanation. Nolly, as she was known, is played by, as Hannah says, Helena Bonham Carter. <laughs> Mark Gatiss plays her dear pal, comedian and presenter Larry Grayson and Augustus Prue is her co-star and bestie Tony Adams, not to be confused with the former Arsenal centre-back. He's a Welsh <laughs> actor... He's so lovely. Anyway, guess who else pops up, lads? It's none other than... Con O'Neill. Of... <laughs> it is none other than Con O'Neill, man of the moment, as TV boss baddie Jack Barton, the man responsible for sending Nolly off on her final voyage on the QE2. That's how she left the series. I know, she Jen. I can't remember watching it on the telly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was so gloriously bad. It was so gloriously camp. So the reason why she is the subject of this big this big drama uh, is that the axing of Gordon caused unprecedented public outcry from outraged viewers and, as the series would have us believe, deep sadness for Gordon. The implication of it is that she had a long-running affair with a married TV exec who eventually dumped her for a younger woman. She had no kids and... And life after Crossroads was basically empty for her. Now, that might not be true. That might be true. I can't speak personally for her because Gordon, obviously, she died in 1985 of stomach cancer. But I don't think it is the most progressive representation of a mm-hmm. uh, middle-aged or older, I suppose, woman on our screens. For all the banging on that this show does about how the world treats difficult, in inverted commas, women. So far, so Russell T. Davis, right? Uh, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I did think about watching one episode so we could have a bit of back and forth about it. And then I went, God, no, it's Russell T. Davis. No. Russell, Russell, can you tell us about that one woman you met once that has shaped your life view of women everywhere forever? But I have to say, I really enjoyed it. I knew absolutely nothing about Noel Gordon. She actually had like an, quite an amazing life. She's the first person to be televised to the world in glorious Technicolor as part of John Logie Baird's transmission in 1938. She's the first woman to interview a British Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan, in 1958. What a life. 
She was a delightful... Until she had no no husband and children, Jen, and yeah. then just empty. But what I will say is, like, she is a delightful character to get to know, which I'm sure is in no small part due to Helena Bonham Carter's endless charisma. I mean, she's just fucking brilliant. And she's so watchable. Like, it, it's a bit like... It's a bit caricature in parts, but it's very, very watchable. But what I really loved was the friendship between her and Tony Adams, not the former Arsenal player. <laughs> it, it's just lovely and it's, it's warm and compassionate and it does, albeit a bit ham-fistedly, make some important points about the way the entertainment industry treats women. And it's really funny. And your mums are going to love it. Oh, so positive. Yeah, really positive. positive. I, I'm not... I'm not mad that I watched it. Good. Thank you. Mickey, you've been watching Hello. a drama too, a drama on Netflix. Indeed I have. I've watched it, all of it. It's no secret that I love a Ghostbuster. Okay, specifically the Ghostbusters. But I was intrigued by Netflix's eight-parter Lockwood & Co, which came with a well of series of young adult books from Jonathan Stroud shaping the narrative, the playfulness and talent of Joe Cornish adapting and directing, a nicely gothic aesthetic and a team of spectre-sleuthing ute rescuing people, all right, mainly each other, from ghosts. It has also got a slew of glowing reviews. And it's all right. Uh (laughs) I mean, how's that for glowing? (laughs) Look, it is. It's it's all right. (laughs) It's a decent watch. I had an okay time. And in fairness, I am probably not the target audience, given the central characters are teenagers. I do imagine if you've got young adults in your house... This would be a really good family watch. So we're in an alternative modern Britain where an epidemic of ghosts, aka the problem, has raged for 50 years. But the only people able to see and fight them and therefore keep everyone safe are children who locate the angry spirits and destroy the source. So like a ring or a mirror from which they emanate. And the styling of all of this is kind of gloomy Victoriana meets contemporary Britain. And it's fetching. I really like it. It works very well. One particularly talented kid is a 15-ish, I think she's 15, year old northerner, Lucy Carlyle, played by Ruby Stokes, who I first saw being brilliant in Rocks with Bucky Backray. She plays Agnes. Can I just interrupt briefly, Mickey, to say Bucky Backray on this week's podcast? Indeed. So Lucy Carlyle's first gig working for one of the many adult-run agencies exploiting the children's abilities ends in tragedy. So she Dick Whittington's it to London in search of something better. There she meets Lockwood, played by Cameron Chapman, a dapper young business owner, also in his late teens, who may or may not have his dead parents locked in a room in his house. Dunno. Didn't find out. Mm. Also his pal, a colleague, pal slash colleague, George, who is Ali Haji Hashmati, whose invaluable ghostbusting skill appears to be reading. Well done, him. There are a couple of meaty, dangerous mysteries for our trio to solve as they bond into the kick-ass company the adults simply can't compete with. So, you know, the setup is really good. I really like the idea. Oh my God, it is immediately emotionally fraught. Every little feeling is dialed up to 11. At one point, Lucy gets really upset when she overhears Lockwood describing her as the company's best asset. An asset? Is that all I am to you? She strops oh, sort God. of teenagerly. How terribly Netflix. <laughs> Look, love, you've only known each other since three days ago when he employed you. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, calm the fuck down, is what I said to the telly. But Lockwood, himself a teenager, chases after her full of apologies and promises she means so much more. And clearly the dude needs a decent HR department stat. 
But that's the dynamic, which is very teenage. I get it. You know, everything does feel like it's amped up to 11. Uh, and it's high drama amid the high drama. And it made me remember how knackering it is being a teenager, even when you don't have to risk your life battling ghosts on the regular it's charming enough. The central cast are excellent and ably supported by some adults. But who am I going to call? My original 1980s heroes forever and ever, IDST. Is it funny? I mean, it's Joe Cornish. It should be funny, right? It's one-liners in a way that I think you would dislike. Juno tends to be our reference point or mm. Gilmore Girls. Yeah. Like, no one talks like that. So there are some, you know, it, it is charming. I, it wasn't belly laughs, but there's some nice zingy bants. But yeah, it's not It's not a lull fest. Interesting. I mean, I can't watch it because I cancelled my Netflix. I wouldn't renew your Netflix for it, Hannah. Fair enough. <laughs> Let's take a break and come back and talk about... We've got some documentaries to talk about. I haven't done that in a while. And then some mm-hmm. other dramas. Okay, welcome back. I've watched a couple of documentaries on Disney. I've only watched one episode of each. And I can report that they were both interesting enough that I will probably eventually go back and watch them all. I just haven't really had the okay. time this month. But I might as well give them a plug based on the fact that, that, that they certainly have interesting premise. I start with Stolen Youth, which is about the Sarah Lawrence sex cult, which you either know about or you don't, which is a really bizarre, as always cult stories are. Sarah Lawrence University, some students who lived in a Hall of Residence type building together. And one of them's dad is released from prison and decides he's going to come and live with them. And then things progress at a rate of madness that you can't quite imagine, which is why, if you want to imagine it, you probably need to watch this documentary, until essentially they're all living in a one-bedroom flat with him in New York, and he is the leader of their cult, taking all their wages and sleeping with the ones he wants to sleep with. It certainly looks interesting as to how perfectly normal, intelligent people suddenly find themselves completely in the thrall of someone who, to us, looks deeply, deeply average, but to them... yeah. Seems to be some sort of god on earth. Fascinating. Yeah, that's a three-part. That's called Stolen Youth. I watched the first part. And I also watched the first part of Killing County, which is from Colin Kaepernick's production company. And it is about police shootings, as maybe you would expect from Kaepernick. What I would say is it's got a lot of nuance in it, perhaps more nuance than I've come to expect from recent stuff from Kaepernick. And actually, it doesn't focus on police shooting black people, which I actually think is quite good because although that is a problem, there are lots of other people that are caught Mm. up in police shootings, notably Latinos and people with mental health problems, which is what this is about. It's about Bakersfield and how Bakersfield was basically uh, ended up being the wrongful, I don't know, I don't know if wrongful is the right word legally because... Nothing ever happens, which is kind of the point of this documentary. But in the minds of many of the people, wrongful shootings and how the families are campaigning for justice. Yeah, it's good. It's interesting. I I, I will go back and watch more of it. And it benefits from a just... Do you know who Andre Holland is, the actor? He was in Selma. He's also Black's boyfriend in... I don't know if boyfriend's the right word, but in Moonlight. In the middle bit or at the end? At the end, Right, okay, yeah. He does the narration, and I would like him to do all narration from now on. He has a really (laughs) paceful, calm, 
interesting voice. It, Morgan Freeman should be shitting himself because everyone will want <laughs> Andre Holland now because his narration is great. So, yeah, I will go back to watch both of them. They're both on Disney. I don't know how many people get Disney, but, yeah, they're both certainly worth a look. Can I ask a question? Mm. What else is... You said, I want to call him Kaepernick, but that's wrong. What else has Kaepernick done? Will I have watched anything? He did the thing with Ava DuVernay. The 13th. 13th. No. He did a documentary with Ava DuVernay and it was about American football um, footballers. He compared them to slaves, which I thought was a statement that lacked an enormous amount of nuance, not least because American mm. footballers are paid and can leave at any time, unlike slaves. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Did you comment on the lack of nuance on our podcast? Yeah, I remember talking about it at some and point. And he's listened to it and he's changed it moving forward. <laughs> Incredible I can only, reach I can only assume he does, yeah. <laughs> well done, mate. Mick, you watched something, a documentary on a more accessible TV channel. On the, the BBC, yes. I watched Emily Atak asking for it, question mark. I didn't think I knew Emily Atak was, to be honest, and it turns out she's the sexy, or indeed sex-mad, schoolgirl Charlotte Hinchcliffe from The Inbetweeners, a sitcom written by two middle-aged blokes. Mm. A sitcom I bloody loved, by the way, although, ugh, Damon Beasley and Ian Morris for that particular nugget. Is she somebody famous as daughter? She, I think she is, yeah. Anyway, Atak is now 33, mad famous, and has her own comedy series, The Emily Atak Show, she also has a lot of men sending what totals thousands of aggressive, explicit messages to her on every social media platform. As a public figure, ATAC gets more of this horrible, insidious shit than most, but she does realise she's not alone here, and so has made this BBC documentary about her experience and its impact on her. It's good, you know, it's, it's important, and it is, as you'd expect, enraging. And ATAC is engaging, articulate, and really candid about the torrent of dick pics abuse and general foot wankery she receives from Joe Public. And the documentary also includes women who don't have a public profile and the impact it has on them, including some 16-year-old girls ATAC visits at a school, almost all of whom have received dick pics or videos of men masturbating. One says she got her first when she was 12. And it's, it's sickening. Oh it's God. really horrible. We have to be our own support group, says one of the girls. I feel more vulnerable in my uniform than I do in anything else, says another. And I couldn't help but think of ATAC dressed as Charlotte Hinchcliffe, boasting she'd had 11 lovers by the time she was 17 in a programme for adults. Ooh, David Beasley and Ian Morris. Mm. Just, just no. Like, that's where the narrative, or partly where the narrative has to stop. And I guess that is part and parcel of the title, right? Which is mm. asking for it, question mark. To which the answer is, of course, no. <laughs> no. There's little delving into this, other than it seems to be the excuse of the various men who send ATAC online abuse. And obviously, as we all know, an omnipresence in pretty much all rape and sexual assault cases. And so, to be fair, I really wish they'd called it something else. I also wish we'd not been treated to Sean Walsh, a writer on the Emily ATAC show, guffawing like a sniggering shit gibbon as ATAC reads out some of the 37 abusive messages she's received that morning. It is, as far as I'm concerned, a fairly standard look for Walsh, but when ATAC quite rightly wants more respect for women, she could keep better company than a man who has flaunted his lack of respect for women. 
ATAC does try to engage with some of her abusers. She sends them messages. She replies and asks them if they talk about it to find out why they do it. But none of them will play ball. And instead, lols, they block her. <laughs> Ridiculous. But she's very interesting on whether blocking works. Once she's hit the button on one particularly horrible knobber who's very aggressive, she muses quite tearfully whether actually it was better knowing where he was. Like, perhaps now she's made him really angry and he's just going to show up at her front door, which is a really interesting, like, shocking point. But the, the, then there's no research on this or mm. info on a, about the best approach, which seems like a really missed opportunity to help the very many women who will totally be nodding along with ATAC's experiences, especially as we'd seen previously, hooray, Professor Jane Monckton-Smith in there, explaining how this kind of behaviour can all too often lead to actual violence so yeah it's it's kind of frustrating I'm, I'm sad it has to exist but i'm very glad it does exist if only so a lot of girls and women going through this know that they're not alone mm. and hopefully know it's not their fault but there is no questioning of the big social media platforms for the part that they play in this there is no mention of parliament's plans to criminalize cyber flashing in england and wales as part of the online safety bill and when that becomes law, or whether that will make a fucking flying farts bit of difference, you know, mm. to these guys. Because we can, says one bloke out of a, we're told, innocent group of men ATAC does talk to about why men do this. And when she asks them, why do they do this? Because we can. And I agree, it's because they can. So how do we let them know that they fucking can't? And that is a question it just doesn't answer. Yeah, that's really interesting. Because... You know, we're now in a place in the world where having personal experience makes you an expert on something. You know, lived experience is what they call it. But having lived experience doesn't make you an investigative journalist. And sometimes no. perhaps someone who hasn't had lived experience of it is the person to look at it in the most. And I don't mean impartial. It's someone who isn't burdened by their own feelings about it is perhaps what I mean. Someone who is able to look and say, this isn't just about your experience, it's about everybody's experience of this. Into a wider, how do we fix it way. Someone who's perhaps a bit better used to working in, you know, politics and stuff like that. Is that not what her producers are for? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The BBC absolutely has access to that kind mm. of talent. And indeed, Marianne Springs, who has done a similar documentary for the BBC as one of their journalists, and the abuse she receives... Mm did an excellent job on her episode of Panorama. It was really interesting. Again, really fucking enraging, obviously. But yeah, I'd have loved to see, as kind of you both mentioned, that, that the team come together and do that because mm. I think ATAC will make a lot of women feel less alone. She's yeah. so candid and she's so engaging. And perhaps appeal to more women than Panorama. Exactly. Would. I think that's the thing, yeah. isn't it? It's that she's she's got a public profile, so she's an appealing totally. face for it kind of thing. But I, yeah, but... I it's a bit baffling that the the producer or the director or whatever didn't make it a bit more you know like a yeah. documentary <laughs> just feels like mm. a real wasted opportunity to get that engagement and then to do very little with it that is helpful or could be helpful interestingly i saw just a little clip from an interview she gave women's hour after it aired mm. about it just a little clip on instagram and she said it was the day after the documentary had gone out and she said that the abuse that she'd received on social media had exponentially increased since the documentary aired, mm. which is horrific, depressing but as also fuck. not 
No, not surprising. Not surprising. Which is also horrific, isn't it? When it was announced that she was making this documentary, she immediately got like a deluge of messages going, oh, I'm really looking forward to wanking over you in this documentary. Like, What's wrong with people? Right, let's stick with the BBC. A drama, it's on a Monday night. I initially thought it was on a Sunday night and I thought, Jesus, this has got a hard job coming after Happy Valley. But actually, it's on a Monday night. It's called better i also thought it was called belter for a while um i just misread it it's called better and i can probably keep my thoughts to this quite tight it i watched it because it's got layla farzad in it and i think she is incredible she's been in lots of stuff landscapers but best known as susie's best friend in i hate susie um in which she is totally brilliant and she plays a bent cop she's in leeds and she is working for slash with for probably more likely a, a baddie, you know, a head honcho who's played by Andrew Buchan. And then when a, a trauma happens in her family, it causes her to rethink and she decides to try and extricate herself from this relationship with this guy that she is working with. That is not going to go well. That's not a spoiler alert, I don't think. I think that's just <laughs> common sense. I've watched all of it. Because I kept thinking, hmm, you know, this isn't Gordian knot. The writers have tied themselves in. Are they going to get themselves out of it satisfactorily? I would say not so much, to be honest. I felt like it had a slightly easy ending. A bit like, was it the light in the hallway I was saying? That suddenly Mm. it was like, it all tied itself up a bit too nicely at the end. And I will say much as I, I, I think... Farzad's great and, and I've got no no issue with Andrew Buchan whatever I've seen him in which isn't that much he's always been quite good everybody has a really I would say mannered performance in it what is it those kids say in The League of Gentlemen too much acting it just feels <laughs> like it's kind of lumbered with that which comes in these really mannered accents she's got a very and I'm pretty sure it's spot on Leeds accent but you you can tell she's doing an accent. You can just, just mm. you know that's not. And it's exactly the same. He has a Northern Irish accent, which is also very, here is my Northern Irish accent. Again, I'm sure it's perfect, but it doesn't feel natural. It doesn't feel organic. It feels like you're watching people act. And right. yeah, Jen, you watched some of it too. I've watched, yeah, I've watched two episodes of it so far. Can I ask? I mean, I, I will watch it to its conclusion. I'm interested enough, but I'm not, like, totally kind of into it. Is there any reason for him being Northern Irish? Is there ever... Is, is that ever put forward, or is that just a... We'll just make him Northern Irish? Like, was there any sense to it? I did consider that he might be tied up in some sort of, I don't know, story about Northern Ireland at some mm. point. But no, I, I don't think so. I think it's... just It's just... Just is. So you think he was like, I've got a wicked Northern Ireland Irish accent. <laughs> Look, can I can do I it? have a go? But can I do it in Northern <laughs> Irish? It's not bad. The problem for me is that the whole thing that it's based on is totally unbelievable. Like, I, I, I don't believe... I don't believe you can be involved in, like, a sort of violent and horrible criminal underworld for almost 20 years and not get quite good at compartmentalising unless you're a psychopath in which case you you don't really need to do you so to Mm. me the idea that a family trauma that is completely unrelated to her involvement in a criminal underworld then triggers her to be like oh no I've got to get out of this game to me that it's just totally unbelievable 
I, I just was don't that buy meant it. to sound like a confession, Jen? Because it sounded a bit like a confession. No, well, <laughs> <laughs> got something to tell you guys. No, did you have any thoughts on that, Hannah? Yeah, in fact, it took a while for me to even realise that that's what was happening. That yeah, she... my my mum was like, "What? What is it like?" Because they kind of set up. If it had been like, I don't want to spoil it for people. If the trauma had been in some way related, yeah, to what she's doing then i could kind of understand it but it's absolutely fucking nothing to do with it the point was she wasn't there when it happened i know but she could have been out for dinner she was out for dinner actually like yeah. she could but it just happens to be with some gang dude yeah, yeah so there is there is that that and nobody could get hold of her because she's not allowed to have a phone when she's with the gang dude but that could literally be i was in the theater and i turned my phone off yeah could be having a particularly tricky poo and not be ready to answer your phone. You don't have to be out with a gangland leader. She at some point explicitly says, this trauma has happened and I've changed my mind and I want to get out. And you shouldn't have to explicitly say it no. for me to realise that that's, that's actually what's happening. No. Obviously watch The Last of Us instead, but if you haven't got if you Sky don't or now it's not terrible and i still think that she is a tremendous actress and i would still watch anything that she's in it just this one just wasn't for me okay so i just want to talk about one thing that i watched i mentioned in the last outside the box that apple were giving away the first series of something and they almost immediately mm. stopped doing that the minute i mentioned oh. it they stopped doing it which i can only assume means that their ploy to make more people join them hadn't worked because everyone had just done what i suggested and watched the first series of limited series and therefore watched it all However, I did manage to watch something else Something else in the period that things were free. I think you can still watch the first episode of something, but that first episode of something isn't enough to drag you in, is it? Which is Severance, which was actually out exactly February the 22nd, 2022. So as we're recording, exactly a year old. And there is a second series coming. So what I would suggest is that maybe if people haven't taken their month's free membership, wait for the second series to be released and then you can watch both of them in that month. It actually made the top 10 lists of a huge amount of TV reviewers last year and I I utterly Mm. passed me by because I don't have Apple. And if you look at, which I automatically do, go and have a little look at the Wikipedia page, it plugs it as a drama, a dystopia, a mystery and a thriller. And that statement is missing one thing and that is that it is very, very funny. Of course it is, because it stars Adam Scott, John Turturro, and several of its episodes are directed by Ben Stiller. So, of course, it's very funny in a very Mm. absurdist way. So the plot is Adam Scott plays this guy called Mark, whose wife has died and he's in terrible mourning. And he gets offered a job for this company, which offers this this thing called severance, which is they can do something to your brain. So your work and your home life are entirely separate in your brain. If you work in a job that you're doing something, you know, that you're really not allowed to talk about, there's no risk of you taking it into your real life. Or if you do a job that's upsetting, you don't take it into your real life. And your work life is not encumbered by your thoughts about things Mm. from the real world. Now, Mark, do you know who Adam Scott is? He's probably, he's in Little Big Little Lies, but he's probably best known for, for, for being in Parks and Rec. Yes, I know who he is. The reason he's done it is because he's really fucked up because his wife has died. So he just wants at least some of his time not to be thinking about his dead wife, which I think we can all agree is not a very good way of healing. (laughs) He works for this company, works in the department. We don't know what he does. You can see what they're doing, but what the end result of what they're doing is, you don't know. They're working on these computers 
grouping numbers. And he works in a department of four, which is just so excellently cast. John Saturo, Brett Lower or Lower, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, who I've never seen in anything before, but is really, really good. And the last one is Zach Cherry, who is probably best known if you've watched the Safe Room episode of Succession as many times as I have. He is the friend <laughs> that Roman makes when he's on his training course. Does that ring a bell? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and he's funny in Succession and he's really fucking funny in this. Also, Patricia Arquette and Christopher Walken. Now, obviously, the dystopian idea of separating the two things in your brain, you know, does create problems. There's some point somebody reports that somebody who's been separated has discovered that they're pregnant and they don't know how it happened. So obviously there are (laughs) dystopian ideas, you know, of of, can people be abused in this environment or are people having affairs in this environment? Who knows? Mm. But where the absolute joy in this series is, is that essentially, and this is quite Charlie Brookerish, you know, when you hive off this other part, what you've essentially created is a new a new personality that is not encumbered with the things that the outside world encumbers you with. So, for example, there's a really interesting plot line about someone who is clearly closeted on the outside, but without the sense of shame that comes from being on the outside. But what makes it just beautiful is just how how childlike they all are. You know, they do this terribly tedious job and if they all do it correctly, something happens and they all get really overexcited. Like there's a point at which someone comes in and plays a song and they all get up and start dancing in this just ridiculously dance like no one's looking way because they these people exist. Basically, they don't have shame and it makes it very, very funny. They find a self-help book and they, the the innies, they're called, they find, somehow find a self-help book and become utterly convinced that this guy is some kind of god. And it's the, the irony of what the self-help book would be on the outside and what it means to them on the inside is, yeah, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Christopher Walken is immensely good in it and very, very funny. I mean, obviously, there's still a thriller element. What does his company do? What are these jobs? What are they doing? But... As an absurdist comedy, it's actually really, really good. Excellent. Well, mine is also Christopher Walken related. Oh, interesting. Finally. It's like buses. More Christopher Walken. (laughs) Exactly. It's like Con O'Neill. Although, you know, (laughs) Walken's been famous for a bit longer. A similar sort of voice, though, isn't it? Very distinctive. Yeah, I finally got round to starting the second series of Outlaws on BBC. And it is so fucking silly. The plot line is utterly ridiculous. They've all become drug dealers now to pay off a drug dealer, which is lols. But it's so beautifully written. And obviously Stephen Merchant is very good with the funny. And they're all just giving it their all in the performances. Yeah, it's not life-changing telly, but it is very comforting telly if you just want to sit and have a giggle and look at Bristol. Who doesn't want to do that? Exactly. Outside the box. 